In this sermon series, we are learning about the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, he said, pray like this, and gave them and us a template for prayer. Last week, our pastor, Alan Duncast, spoke about God's forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This morning, we move on to the next line. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God's protection. Every Christian should know by now that Jesus is the Good Shepherd and that he expects us to follow him and submit to his guidance and receive his provision. It's a beautiful and comforting picture that Jesus paints for us. We are his sheep and he is our shepherd. Psalm 23 reminds us that the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He guides me along bright paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Jesus wants us to pray every day, not just for protection from Satan, the evil one, but for the wisdom and grace to not go our own way. We need grace to follow his lead. We are so rebellious and so distracted. God help us to follow the lead of our good shepherd. Amen. End of our series on the Lord's Prayer, and we're talking about God's protection today. And one of the things that I just want to remind everybody of is the fact that we need to pray for each other. And I think most of us know that here, but we sometimes don't stop to think about what that means. I think most of you would expect that, that I, as your pastor, would be praying for you. And the good news is I do pray for you. And I pray for, uh, for many of you in the middle of the night. Your, your name will come to my, uh, to my mind. Um, in fact, just this, this morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, I was praying for a number of people in our church. And this is a, a, a regular occurrence. And uh, here's what you need to know. In the Lord's Prayer, it begins, Our Father. It begins with the first person plural. We are praying this together. We recognize that we are part of God's earthly council. Some of you may have heard or maybe have remembered hearing about the divine council, which we talked about in a previous series, but we are the earthly council. The divine council are, are those, uh, those beings created by God in the heavenly places that, that, that govern with God in, in, in the universe, and we on earth are his earthly council. And what we do when we go into prayer is we pray together for the glory of God and one of the things that I recently found, and, and as, a, as a reminder that you need to pray for me, is uh, these statistics. It says, pray for your pastor. It says that 97% of pastors have been betrayed, falsely accused, or hurt by their trusted friends. Uh, you might say, well, Pastor Allen, I'm in, I'm, that, that could apply to me as well. And you're right, it does. We have all experienced that. Um, pastors battle depression, 70% do. Uh, 7,000 churches close each year, 1,500 pastors quit each month, 10% will retire a pastor. In other words, uh, 90% don't, they don't go their whole uh, working life as pastors because they just can't take it. It's, it's that difficult. 80% uh, of pastors feel discouraged. 94% of pastors' families feel the pressure of ministry. 78% of pastors have no close friends. 
90% of pastors report working 55 to 75 hours per week. And uh, I w I'll tell you that that really resonated with me. And so in saying this, I'm saying to you, I need you to pray for me, even as I pray for you. When I first started praying the Lord's Prayer, I would pray, my Father in heaven, even though Jesus said, pray our Father, because it didn't sound right. I thought to myself, well, I'm praying, and so it's, it's got to be me. It's got to be about me and my relationship with God. And while that is true, we are, you know, we are in a relationship with God. We do call him our Father. What we need to understand is that we are a body of believers. We are part of a family. And it's critical that we understand that God's kingdom is advanced on earth as God's people band together and function as a family unit. This is why it's so critical that you are in church on Sunday, that you have an opportunity to fellowship with, with your brothers and sisters in Christ in your small group. It's all part of what it means to be a, a Christian. Now, what I want to do this morning is I just want to quickly walk you through some of the ways to pray. Because again, I've heard this so many times, Pastor, I really don't know how to pray. And you have taught me the Lord's Prayer, and I'm, I'm kind of getting it. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that the only way that you can really master the Lord's Prayer is by learning to practice it uh, every day. You need to start praying it every day. And the reason we, we, uh, we say you need to pray it every day is because that is precisely what Jesus said. When you pray every day, pray like this or say this. And again, I, I've mentioned this now for five weeks, and I'm mentioning it again because there are some people who still don't understand that, that Jesus wants you to pray using the Lord's Prayer model. And we said it's, it's not so much a prayer as much as it is a model for prayer or an outline of the things that you need to cover. Um, I sometimes call it God's agenda, his agenda for his people. And so can you imagine people all over the world praying along the same lines? People all over the world, we're all praying the same thing. We're all going in the same direction. Can you imagine what a mighty host, what a mighty army of God that that, that would be if we're all moving in the same direction? And that's what the prayer does. The Lord's Prayer gets us moving in the same direction. So God says, whenever you pray, pray like this. By the way, one of the things that I've discovered is that I have to pray out loud because if I, if I don't pray out loud, then and quite frankly, I'll just fall asleep or my mind will begin to wander and I'll be, I'll be thinking about, oh, the deck is still not quite finished. I still got to paint this and I got to fix that. And I don't know, maybe you're like that too. And oh, the car needs gas and I forgot to put windshield washer in and, and um, I forgot to take the vehicle to auto pack and, and, and all of a sudden things start going through your mind. So what you need to do and I've been praying like this for many years, is you need to start praying out loud. And you say, Pastor, oh, I can't pray out loud all the time. Well, look it, you're right. You can't pray out loud all the time. For instance, if you're going in to write, write an exam, uh, I mean, it wouldn't do for you to get to the classroom and start praying out loud. Oh God, I forgot to study for the test. God, give me divine insight from above. Uh, it just doesn't work. However, when you're on your own on a daily basis, what you need to do is you need to go to a place but Jesus said, go to that prayer closet, go to that quiet place and start talking to God. Because prayer, folks, is a conversation between you and the Father, or shall I say, our Father. You are going into his presence and you are going through his agenda. 
I like to call God the sovereign of the universe, the CEO of the universe. And every time you go into prayer, you are entering into his headquarters. So we pray, our Father in heaven. What is heaven? Heaven is the place where God dwells. It's his throne room. I call it his, the Garden of Eden headquarters. It's a place where we go before his throne. And remember we said we have access to God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then the Bible says that you can come to the throne of God with all your petitions, your needs. Now, uh, here's what else we learn. We learn that we're uh, in that place, we're, we're uh, praying to our Father. The very first thing that you need to do is praise him. Here's what I know about you. If you're not spending time every day praising God for at least a bit of time, then you're probably not a grateful person. You're probably a whiner and a complainer, a grumbler. You've probably got a whole list of things to complain about to God and to anybody else who will listen. What you need to do, and Jesus again teaches us this, is that we need to go to the Father and we need to praise him. We need to, first of all, thank him for Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. We just thank God for the Savior who makes it possible for us to come to the Father. And we need to thank him that he has welcomed us into his family. He's our Father, and sitting around us today are our brothers and sisters in Christ. The next part of the prayer goes like this. Hallowed be thy name. Again, what are we doing? We're asking God for grace to not bring shame on God's name. We're asking the Holy Spirit's help to live this holy life. Now, this is really what holiness is all about. Holiness is really about living a life that's set apart for God's purposes. That's what holiness means. A lot of people don't know that. They think of, when they think of holiness, they think, don't smoke, don't drink, don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke pot, don't do this, don't do that. And while it's good not to do that stuff, or most of it, uh, what you need to understand is a Christian is supposed to be set apart for God's purposes. In other words, you do what God needs you to do on this earth. You become an agent of his kingdom, advancing his kingdom throughout this broken and hurting world. And the way that you do that is by being careful not, never to bring shame on God's name. And so that's why we pray, hallowed be your name. God, let your name be, uh, if you want to put it like this, holyize your name in me, God. Make sure, God, by your spirit that I do not bring shame on you. And then we pray, thy kingdom come, and we're asking for God's rule to be established in people's hearts, in our children, in our family, uh, in our marriage, uh, in our community, the place where we work, uh, in Burundi. What, wherever, wherever there are Christians, we want to be used by God to establish his kingdom, to advance his kingdom. We're asking for salvation. Do you know, I was, people I pray for on a regular basis that, are, uh, that maybe were attended here as children and now they've drifted away from God, I'm still praying for them. And you need to do that too. You, maybe you've got children, you've got grandchildren, you've got nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, cousins, whatever, that aren't serving God, then it's your job to pray for them. And that's what we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come. And then we're saying, God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what are we saying? We're, we're doing what Jesus did when he was in the garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross. You remember this. What does Jesus pray? He says, God, I don't really want to go to the cross. In fact, I don't want to go to the cross at all. 
And the Bible explains or, or describes the anguish that Jesus went through in that place. And it says he was, was like sweating like drips, drops of blood. It was so intense. And, and at the end of it all, knowing that he's going to the cross, he said, but God, not my will, but thine be done. And so really what you're doing, and, and by the way, God's not going to call anybody here to die on a cross, I don't think. Uh, so whatever you have to face is not going to likely be that bad. But know this, God wants you to pray every day for his guidance, that, that, that you would know his will, and, and that you would have his help in, in your life, your children, in your wife, in your pastor, your church, etc. Now, can I just say this for a moment? For many of us, when we go into prayer, what we're doing is we come to God and we start telling him what to do. It'd be like me going into the headquarters of, of GM or Toyota, it go right to the top, right to the, right to the conference room, and, and I find the, the, uh, the CEO, and I start telling him how to run his company. Well, that's absurd. We wouldn't dream of doing that. And yet, this is what we do when we go to God, start telling him what to do. When we go into prayer, folks, what we're supposed to be doing is we're supposed to be going to him and listening to him and saying, God, what is your will? And God, help, help me to get my will and my mind aligned with your will, aligned with your purposes, your plans. Because I want to do what you want me to do, God. In fact, I, I don't want my will to be done because if my will's being done, then it's going to be a disaster. How many of you are thankful to God that there's certain prayers that you prayed that God didn't answer? You know what I'm talking about. You, you don't want your will ultimately to be done. You want God's will to be done because God knows best. Now, can I just stop for a moment and just remind you of something? We say, we say thy kingdom God, come. We recognize that he is the king. Now, the beautiful thing, folks, is this. You have access to this king anytime. If I went to England and I knocked on the front doors of Buckingham Palace and I said, I want to see the queen, well, they would just laugh at me, call the police and say, we have a nut job on our doorstep. Can you take him away? But if it's Charles who knocks on the door and says, I want to see mummy, and that's what he calls her, he'd be allowed in. And anybody by the name of Will or Kate or George, the reason I know all the royal family is because Gloria told me. If Andrew or Edward or Anne knock on the door, they want to see mummy, no problem. But Alan Duncalf from Canada wants to see the Queen? Not a chance. Now, here's the thing, folks. Because of, of what Jesus Christ has done for us, because we have put our faith in Jesus, we have been included in the family. And now G God knows me by name. He goes, oh, Alan's here. Yeah, bring him in. It's fantastic. We're, we're going to have a conversation. And we're gonna get my, I'm going to get my mind aligned with the mind of God, and I'm going to start doing what God wants me to do. I'm going to pray that God's will would be done in my life. You see what we're talking about here? We're talking about a family. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then we pray, give us today our daily bread. And what are we doing? We're asking God, first of all, to nourish us by his word. Why? Because the Bible says that man does not live by bread alone or by food alone. We live by the word of God. That's why we have to study the Bible every day. If I hear somebody say, Pastor, I read the Bible, but it doesn't speak to me, then here's what I know. I know that you're reading this book as though it were a novel. Folks, this is not Lord of the Rings. This is God speaking to you. This is not Anne of Green Gables. 
This is, this is scripture. This is God-inspired words speaking to you. And I'm going to tell you, every time you go into, into prayer, you need to say, God, when I read my Bible, please speak to me and nourish my spirit. And then we also need to pray that God would meet all our needs because God wants to do that for you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to feed you. He wants to clothe you. He wants to make sure you have a roof over your head. He wants to make sure all your needs are met. And what you need to do is you need to pray that fourth petition. And God delights in meeting your needs. You say, well, Pastor, I don't like to be that selfish. Folks, it's God's will. God wants to provide for you, and he wants you to ask. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. That's what God wants. The fifth petition says, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Remember, God cannot forgive you of your sins unless you forgive others of their sin. So it's critical, folks, that we, we get this clear in our heads. And I'm gonna tell you, once you have asked God to forgive you of your sins, you've gotta make sure that you've also forgiven everybody who sinned against you. You said, everyone, pastor? Absolutely everyone. Everyone needs to be forgiven. You need to let it go so that your heart will be clean. And then we pray the sixth petition, and then we end today on this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, before we look at that verse, I wanna just tell you that I have made a prayer guide for you so that you can take this prayer guide. It's just the Lord's Prayer that, that prompts you in knowing what to pray and how to pray. I'm gonna tell you, if you start praying this prayer every day, it will revolutionize your life. You will find yourself falling in step and in line with what God wants you to do. And once you start doing what God wants you to do, it's a game changer. You will experience God in ways you've never experienced them before, and you'll start to see the miracles that you hear about but you maybe don't experience. God wants to work in your life. He wants to use you. He wants to perform a great and mighty things for you but you have to get in line with his will and his purpose. Remember, he's the CEO sitting in the conference room of heaven called the Garden of Eden, and this is the agenda. His prayer is the agenda, and everybody goes through that agenda every day in order to do exactly what he wants. Now, let's look at this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, you know, when I first sort of became conscious of it, uh, I heard it as a child. We said the Lord's Prayer in school all the time, and it was kind of like yeah, we said it, but we really didn't think about it. But then suddenly one day you actually start thinking about it, and you think, well, that's weird. Why would, why would Jesus tell us to pray and lead us not into temptation? Does that mean that God could possibly lead us into temptation? That doesn't make sense. Does God tempt us? Why is Jesus saying that? Well, uh, in the first service, everybody was yelling out, no, no, God can't tempt us. But I don't know if you are aware of this, but God, in fact, does not tempt us. And here's what it says in James 1.3. It says, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong. And by the way, he never tempts anyone else. So we know then that reading that, that verse, lead us not into temptation, does not suggesting that there's a chance that maybe, just maybe, God will lead us into temptation because it's clear that that would never, ever happen. So then what does that petition mean? I can tell you what I, what I thought it meant when I was younger. I believe that I'm supposed to pray that God will, will help me not to fall into temptation. And I prayed also that God would protect me from the evil one. Now, 
I wasn't exactly sure how we came to that conclusion, but it seems that that's what the verse is implying. Well, guess what? I was right. But I didn't fully understand the verse, and I want to share that with you now just so that you can understand what exactly it is that you're praying. And I'm praying this morning that your hearts will be, will be full of praise and thanksgiving to God when you fully understand what all this means. Now, I want you to take a look at that word temptation. You see the word? And lead us not into temptation. That word temptation is a Greek word, and the Greek word is pirasmon, and it means trial. And so uh, here's what we see. Uh, lead us not into temptation, or lead us not into trials, but deliver us from the evil one. So why would they translate it, lead us not into temptation? Well, you see, the second half of the verse, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, deliver us from the evil one helps us understand the first half of the verse. So that, and let's just take a look at that. But live, deliver us from the evil one. We understand that somehow, some way, God is leading us, but that there's another force at work. And it's not just God. And if you haven't figured that out in your life yet, well then, you know, surprise. You know that, that it's, you've had some really rough times, some real tough struggles. On the one hand, Jesus is saying that we need to pray that, that, that God will lead us as a shepherd leads his sheep. But we also need to be aware of the fact that there's an evil one who wants to drag us down. The evil one wants to turn the test into a temptation. That's really what we're seeing here. Lead us not into the trial that may end in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you didn't understand that, don't panic. I'll explain it to you. So the Lord, Shep the Lord God is our shepherd, and we, we heard the, uh, that little sketch that Laura did, and she's reading right from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And it says he leads us. He leads us through every step of our life. Now, I want you to stop for a moment, because when we think of God leading us through every step of our life, we think, well, if God's leading us, then there's only going to be good that happens in my life. I, there will never be any difficulty. There'll never be any struggle. But anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time knows that that's just not true. Because you have gone through some pretty severe trials and testings. This is what Jesus is addressing. These trials and these tests that you're going through. And you wonder, where's God? And I'm going to tell you right now, God is with you. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, before he did any healing, before he preached any sermons, before he raised anybody from the dead, before he walked on the water, before he officially begins his ministry, he is baptized in water, and something extraordinary happens. He goes down, and when he comes up out of the water, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit uh, descended upon him, and there is a voice from heaven that says that this is my Dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. Jesus is on a spiritual mountaintop. I mean, it doesn't get any better than this. The Spirit of God has come upon him. God's talking from heaven. He's experiencing a spiritual high unlike anything that anybody has ever experienced before. And for some of us, many of us have experienced that sort of thing. 
We've experienced that mountain high uh, that, that Jesus experienced. But the thing that happens after is really quite shocking. Jesus is in, on this mountaintop experiencing the Holy Spirit, and he's being baptized, and everybody is, has just heard the voice from heaven, and he's been, he's been uh, uh, ratified, if you will, in front of everybody. And Jesus is thinking, man, this doesn't get better than this. And then the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4 that the Holy Spirit immediately drives him out into the desert to a place where he's going to be tested. You've heard about it. You've heard of it. You've, it's called the temptation of Christ. From the mountaintop, from the mountain peak, where you're experiencing the power and the glory and the wonder of Almighty God, Jesus goes right down into the valley of the shadow of death. He's all alone. He's hungry. He's in the place of testing. And the Bible says, watch this, that the Holy Spirit led him there to the place of testing. Every one of us, as, as Christians, as believers, every one of us is going to go through times of testing. When you became a Christian, if somebody told you, become a Christian and everything will always be roses and beautiful and mountaintops, that's just simply not true. It's not biblical. It's not, it's not scriptural. It's not the gospel. Jesus went from the mountaintop right into the valley of the shadow of death, right into the desert of testing. Now, I want you to look at this. This may be... Uh, a rendering of that petition that helps you understand it better. Father, as you lead us into the test, do not let the test become a temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What we're saying is, God, when I'm, gonna, when I'm tested, in those moments when I'm tested, please, God, don't let me fall into temptation because I know that the enemy is going to try and use that time of testing to cause me to stop trusting you, Father. Every, the Bible says that we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes, and I'm gonna tell you what Satan wants to do, and you maybe are experiencing it even now as I'm speaking to you. Satan wants to suggest to you that God is not trustworthy. You can't trust him. He doesn't have your best at heart. What God wants us to do is he wants us to learn how to trust him. He wants us to learn what it means to put our full trust in him, to bring us through even these times of testing. And the good news, folks, is this. In Matthew chapter 4, the Bible says that Jesus came through that time of testing. He did not fall into temptation. It says that God protected him. And because of that, he was able to be our Savior. Now, I want you to see something here from the very beginning of the Bible, from Matthew right through to Revelation. The Bible is full of stories of testing being made temptation. Can I say that again? Testing being made temptation. We saw it with Adam and Eve, didn't we? Adam and Eve are in a position where they're being tested. And Satan comes along, and he tries to tempt them to not trust God. Temp Satan says to Adam and Eve, did God really say that you can't, you can't eat any fruit from any of these trees here and twist the words of Jesus. God leaves some words out. And Adam and Eve enters into a relationship with Satan, starts discussing 
what God said or didn't say or how it was said and where it was said and what they can do, what they can't do. And next thing you know, Adam and Eve, who were being tested, fell into temptation. And it was all based on their lack of willingness to trust God. And I'm going to tell you, that is exactly what happens to every single one of us. Why does God allow us to be tested? Well, there's one reason why, and it's for life. Some of you know that the tagline on our, our church name is for life. Life is found, my friends, only in trusting God. And I'm going to tell you this, the more that you trust God, the greater will be the quality of your life. Let me say that again. The more that you trust God, the greater will be the quality of your life. God wants you to have a great life. He wants you to enjoy the abundant life. That's what Jesus said. Satan has come to rob, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, but I have come that you might have life. That's interesting, isn't it? Satan wants to destroy you, and Jesus wants to give you life. You know what? Uh, the best way I can explain this is, I remember when we were young, my dad bought uh, weights for my brother, Carrie, and, uh, and they were used, secondhand weights, and uh, we were excited about getting these weights, at least Carrie was. And, uh, and I remember working out in the backyard with these weights, had doing some bench pressing and, and, and developing muscles. Uh, Carrie took to it better than I did. He's here right now, and he's got massive arms. You can feel his arms later if you want. I'll give you permission. I'll charge for it, actually. We'll give the money to missions. But the more he lifted those weights, the more he exercised, the more bench pressing he did, the bigger his muscles became. Now, I want the Spirit of God to speak to you right now because here's what happens. When you are going through testing, what God is doing is he's developing your spiritual muscles, your faith muscles, your trust muscles. And here's the thing. The more you trust God, the better is your quality of life. The less you trust God, the worse your life is. People who don't trust God are constantly biting their nails. They're worried. They're fretting. They're uptight. They're anxious. They can stay awake at night. They, they got to they gotta medicate so they can sleep. They got to medicate so they can make it through the day. Why? Because they don't trust God. And God in his mercy and his kindness says, man, you've got to learn how to trust me. Because the, when you trust me, my child, my son, my daughter, it improves the quality of your life. And so here's what you're going to find through the course of your whole life is that God is going to allow you to be tested. He's going to test you and he's going to test you. And I'm going to tell you this, the more that you trust God, the more that you love him. And the more that you love him, the more that you will trust him. By the way, this principle applies to your marriage as well. The more that you trust your spouse, the more you will love your spouse. The more you love your spouse, the more you will trust your spouse. That's why in your marriage, you're going to go through some times of testing, through some struggles. Now, don't despair and say, oh, we're going through a struggle. We better get a divorce. It's all over. Let's, let's, let's just blow the whistle. Let's call it quits. Throw in the towel. No. Allow God to use that time of testing in your marriage to make you stronger, to make you love each other more, to make you trust each other more. Testing is what this life is all about. And here's what James says. 
It says, consider it all joy. Or in the NIV, I like the way they say it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing, what? That the testing of your faith produces endurance so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Here's what I know. God wants your faith to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And the only way that that can happen, my friends, is not by God waving his magic wand over you, but rather by you being tested and you coming through the fire. In fact, that's exactly what it says here in Isaiah 48.10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Some of you right now are in the furnace of affliction. Maybe, uh, maybe it's in your marriage with your kids. Maybe it's, it's at, your, at your job, your business, your place of work, uh, at school, you're in, with your neighbors. Here's what you need to say. You need to say, God, what is it that you want me to learn here? And God, how can I trust you so that I can get through this furnace of affliction and become the godly man or woman that you want me to be? Because your quality of life, remember, is tied to your trust in God. The more you trust him, the better is your quality of life. You know, I learned this lesson as a youth pastor. Uh, I was making $900 a month, and it was enough money to pay for my car, the car payment, to pay for my uh, apartment, make my apartment payment. It was enough to pay for my insurance. Uh, It was enough to put a, a little bit of gas in my car, and it was enough to buy a, a bit of uh, macaroni and cheese once in a while. And that was it. It was not enough to live on. And by the way, can I add this? It was out of that $900, I always, always tithed. And oftentimes would not just tithe on that, I would also support the youth ministry because there was no budget for youth ministry. And here's what happened, folks. God provided in such miraculous ways. We had a lady down the hall. Her name was Julie Jeremy. She'd say to me, uh, Alan, I've got a bit of extra soup. You don't want any, do you? And I would say, not trying to sound like I'm begging or too desperate, I'd say, well, sure, I'll take a bit. And then I would go there and finish it off. Or I'd get Dennis's mom, because she was in the first church I was in, Dennis Weeb, who was up here a moment ago. And uh, she'd say, Alan, I'm, I'm making... Uh, bacon, tomato, and cheese, and lettuce sandwiches. Would you like one? I'd say, sure, I'd love to have at least one. And that would happen on a regular basis. Or I'd get invited over uh, out for dinner with my parents or get to, go over to my brother's house, my older brother's. He thought I was coming to visit, but I was just going there to eat. And I, I just found God providing in such marvelous and miraculous ways. And I never went hungry, as you can see. I learned how to tithe. I learned how to give, even though I couldn't afford it. And I knew that God was testing me, was allowing this test to happen in my life. And the temptation was to say, God, I won't have enough. I won't have enough. And some of you have said the same thing to God. And then you wonder why God doesn't answer your prayers. And God says, test me in this. In fact, it says that in Malachi chapter 3. Test me in this. Prove me in this. Check me out. See if I won't keep my promises. 
Give your tithe to the Lord and let God do his thing. And folks, I'm gonna tell you something I learned when I was just 21 years old. I learned how to be not just a giver, but a generous giver, a tither, and I gave offerings over and above that. And, I, and to this day, we still do that. And now I've taught my kids how to do that because I want them to experience God's provision in their lives. And so we give and God provides and God meets the needs. And you see, we're living by faith. I'm going to tell you today, my friends, if you want to live by faith, then you've got to start taking God at his word and doing what he tells you to do. Don't come up with the excuse and say, God, I can't do it. I can't do it. Folks, what you're doing is you're falling into temptation. And it's for this reason we pray every day, Father, lead me not into temptation, or maybe better put, Father, when I'm going through the time of testing, help me not to fall into temptation. Help me to do what you want me to do. Remember, we're going to the King of Kings, the Lord, the CEO of the universe, and we do what he says, even when it doesn't make sense to us. You know, the whole history of God's work in human beings has been all about testing. Can you imagine Noah? Well, Adam and Eve, first of all, they, they were tested and they didn't do so well. But thank God Noah, when he was being tested, he he didn't fail the test because, frankly, if he had failed the test, well, according to the Scripture, you and I wouldn't be here. Could you imagine God says to Noah, I want you to build an ocean liner, and Noah says, what is that? And God gives him the instructions, just do what I tell you to do, Noah. And Noah does exactly what God wants him to do, and by that, saves himself and his family. Noah passed the test. Abraham passed the test. God told Abraham, I want you to leave your homeland. I'm going to go take you to a place that I'm going to give to you. And Noah, Abraham says, well, where is that? And God says, never mind, you'll see. And Abraham says to his wife, dear, we're going on a trip. And his wife says, well, how much should I pack? And Abraham says, everything, because we ain't coming back. And Sarah, in a moment of being tested, she says, okay, dear, I'm going to do what you say, packs everything up, and they go. And the Bible says they never did possess that land, but their offspring did. They were being tested. If they had failed the test, then their offspring wouldn't have received the gift. Then there's Joseph, the son of Jacob. Abraham was Joseph's grandfather. Joseph has been told by his parents, you are the most handsome son we have. You are the smartest son we have. You are a leader amongst all your brothers, even though you're nearly the youngest. You're the best, the smartest, or you're our favorite. We love you the most. And Joseph is growing up his whole life thinking he is the most spectacular, the most wonderful human being on the planet. Can you imagine his shock? While he's wearing his coat of many colors, when his brothers say, you know, mom and dad think you're the best, but we think you're a little snot. And uh, by the way, you're not coming home tonight. The brothers were tempted to kill him. This is very shocking to Joseph. God, where are you? I thought I was wonderful. I thought I was spectacular. I'm good looking and smart. Thrown into a pit. And the brothers who finally decided, well, rather than killing him, let's sell him off to Egypt. And they sell him off to Egypt. And he gets to Egypt. He gets into the home of, of Potiphar, one of the high officials of Egypt. And he's doing a great job. In fact, the Bible says that because Joseph is there, that Potiphar's house is flourishing and doing well, and Potiphar trusts Joseph. And finally, he decides one day he's going to go on a business trip and leave Joseph at home, taking care of his wife and all his possessions. And, and uh, 
Potiphar's wife decides that she's got a she's got a hankering for Joseph. She likes him. And not only likes him, but she wants to have sex with him. And Joseph could very well have thought, you know what, I, I can't help it. I'm a slave. I got to do as I'm told. But Joseph knows he's being tested. And he says, God, I'm not going to disappoint you. I'm not going to let you down. God, I'm going to do exactly what I'm supposed to do because I belong to you. I am your child. I'm your son. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. And Potiphar's wife is furious. And so when her husband gets home, she tells Potiphar, that man that you brought into our house to service, he tried to rape me. And next thing you know, Joseph is thrown into prison and Joseph's rotting in the bottom of the prison. He's saying, God, what is going on? I thought I was the best looking. I thought I was the smartest. I thought I, was, I, thought I had your favor. And God says, cool your jets, Joseph. You're in a deep, deep valley right now, the valley of the shadow of death. It's a time of testing. Don't panic. Don't give up. I am still in control. I still know what I'm doing. Keep your eyes focused on me. And there in the prison, Joseph meets two of the main officials in Egypt, the baker and the wine tester. And through them, Joseph is introduced to Pharaoh. Joseph, in fact, interprets a dream of Pharaoh that nobody else could interpret. And suddenly, Joseph, who is tempted, tempted to give up, He's being tested, and now he's being tempted to give up and to quit and to throw in the towel and say, God, you've abandoned me. What kind of a God would do this to me? Rather than doing that, Joseph stays true to God, and suddenly from the valley of the shadow of death, he shoots right to the top, second in command to Pharaoh. I want the Spirit of God to speak to you right now because this is, folks, exactly what, what God wants to do for you and in you. You've been tempted to give up, tempted to, to throw in the towel, tempted to quit. And God is here today to say, I haven't forgotten about you. I love you. And the best is yet to come. Trust me. Trust me, my son. Trust me, my daughter. And as Satan comes along and tries to tempt you to give in, to quit, understand you're going through a time of testing. And when you come out on the other side, you are going to be stronger, wiser. You are going to be more spiritual, more godly, more powerful than you could ever imagine. And it's for this reason we pray every day, Father, lead me not into temptation. When I'm being tested, don't let me fall and protect me from the evil one. Just stand with me as we pray. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit who works in us and through us. Some of us I know today are feeling really shaky right now. Maybe feeling like giving up, feeling like quitting, feeling like there's, they, there's no tomorrow. Feeling like they got to take matters into their own hands. Feeling that, well, God's not coming through, so I better do something. God, I pray right now that you would help each one get through this time of testing to trust you and not give up. And we thank you today, Lord. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We thank you today, God, that even though we may be in the valley of the shadow of death, it could be as early as tomorrow that we shoot to the top of the mountain and we recognize that God was with us the whole time. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Help us to trust you, we pray, God. 
And now, Lord, as we go from here now, as we take our prayer guide, help us, we pray, to pray every day the prayer that Jesus taught us, that you would be glorified and honored in our lives, that we would be used by you to advance your kingdom. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Everyone said it with me. Tell the person beside you, don't give in to temptation.